farmers get a bit of a bad rap sometimes. We're all out there trying to destroy the land and, and, and not looking after animals. And I think people, if they can click on and just see a, a bit about the farm and a bit about the farmer's life and where their wool's come from, they might appreciate a bit more and might get them out there to, to buy it. G'day and welcome to our final episode for 2021. I'm sure many of you may be in the same boat that it only felt like a few weeks ago. I was counting down. I think that was kind of three months out from the end of the year, but Christmas has certainly come around very quickly. I hope you all are getting excited for a bit of a break and you can spend some much needed time with friends and family. I could run a heap of highlights for 2021, but one that is especially prominent is the support that LAWD have shown to us this year. LAWD are the specialists in agribusiness valuations. They really have helped us take the next step. I can't wait to continue that relationship with them next year. You can check out more about them at www.lawd.com.au. I'd like to acknowledge the Wiradjuri people and extend my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I'd like to extend those respects to the traditional owners on the country wherever you may be listening to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Today we're sitting down with Scott and Hannah Bryan, a father-daughter duo who are studding commercial sheep breeders out near Wellington in central west New South Wales. This episode was recorded as part of a mini tour through the central west and I hope you enjoy it. Today we're learning a little bit more about their operation, their farming practices, how Scott stepped out from his family business and, and into his own. He also mentions a little bit more about the ethical wool program. So if you're anything like me, you'll be learning a little bit more about what happens inside the farm gate and how that then flows through the supply chain. Hannah's also a uni student and she's studying a degree in sustainable communities down in Wollongong. And it was really interesting just to understand a little bit more about how the ag and sustainable community piece comes together. Enjoy the chat. Scott and Hannah, thank you for having us out here this morning, early Saturday morning here at Bellalana. You're welcome, Ollie. Um, yeah, w- welcome on this cool late November morning. Yeah, it's um, cool for this time of year and very wet. Yeah, absolutely. We weren't sure if we were going to get in this morning. <laughs> no, I've had to do a bit to the road to get you in with a tractor. Um, yeah, with a bit of flood water the last couple of days, but um, yeah, we've got there in, in the end. Can you tell us a little bit just about your, your property here? Uh, we've been on this property here since um, January 1993. Um, we moved in and um, we've been slowly increasing in size ever since then. Uh, it's mainly just a breeding block. Uh, just a bit of, bit of cropping for um, winter fodder, uh, and it runs our um, Bellalana Merino stud. And for you, Hannah, you're, you're a uni student via distance at the moment? Yes, because of COVID. I've <laughs> uh, been basically part-time down at Wollongong, then here uh, for two years now, just finished second year, so yeah. And is this how you kind of thought uni would look like when uh, you were leaving school? No, not at all. <laughs> uh, very different, but it's honestly been great for me because I've been home and yeah, Get to spend a bit more time on the farm. It's been great. Can you tell me a little bit more about like your interests, Hannah, and so whereabouts yeah, you went to school? Yeah, went to school, um, started in town in Wellington and then moved year nine down to Orange, down to Kingross, yep. and was sort of bought up, bought a, um, at family. So I was 
through the week, I was staying with relatives and back home every weekend. And so that was good. Um, and, yeah, then had a gap year on the farm, did some travelling for three months and then, yeah, started Wollongong, down at Wollongong for university. Was it travelling in Australia or did you manage No, to? overseas. Overseas, awesome. yeah. And then got home and then it was, what, two months and then lockdown. Hit yeah, wow. COVID, yeah. So. You told that well? Yeah, very well, very well. Whereabouts did you go to? Um, so we started off in Spain, we went to Croatia, yeah, just did the whole Europe. Yeah, it was really good. Awesome. Yeah. Bit of a transition now to being at home. Yeah, bit of a transition. <laughs> no, it was good. It was a really good experience. <laughs> and Scott Fear, you mentioned you... You guys came here in 93, so whereabouts were you growing up? Uh, before then, I grew up on a f- family farm about 15 kilometres to the west of here, a little place called Newry. Um, and the family farm growing up consisted of my grandparents, uncles and aunties. Uh, it wasn't a big farm, but it seemed to supply enough for everyone. Um, and then as, as families got older and succession took in, a, a family farm got split down and then... then we started a growing process with Dad and my brothers then and, and grew his side of the family farm then. Was it always the plan to go farming from a young age? Uh, from, a, from a young guy, I would um, fence off parts along a creek and dig them up by hand with a mattock and a shovel and plant my own crops and plant pasture and then I would turn sheep in on it. Um, just something I've always been drawn to, yeah. Um, all, always loved it. What, what was it about that? process from a young age I'm, I'm not sure it's just uh, growing up on the farm with all the cousins and whatnot it was such a fantastic time we had so much fun with the playing footy swimming in dams um, building cubby houses and I'm not sure why why I started digging up sides of creeks and and, um, and planting our own crops it was just something I was drawn to and and then I used to follow walk behind the header all day just walking behind it round in the paddock when dad was harvesting so it was just for some reason, I was just drawn to it. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And you've obviously got attention to detail. Uh, well, should I ask Hannah? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe you should. Um, I quite often get told I do jobs 80 to 90% and then I, then I leave them around here. So, yeah, maybe you should ask, ask Hannah. <laughs> Close-ish too. That's it. That's it. That decision to come and start your own business, was it was an easy one? How, how do you actually exit the family business to come and set, set yourself up here? Um, originally, this this farm, or the first part of this farm was bought as, as a whole um, family partnership, and it wasn't until 10 years ago that we did succession planning, um, and we got out of the partnership, and mum and dad were set up in town, and my brothers went on the other block, and we took this block and um, made this the Merino enterprise and and finally got into um breeding merino sheep and, and stud sheep are you guys still involved with the family enterprise or it's now completely separate it's now now completely separate um my brothers run their their own their own enterprises mainly cropping and, and crossbred lambs and i just purely run merino sheep here with a little bit of opportunity cropping and the primary business here is, is around the stud <laughs> around the stud or is it a commercial uh it's it's mainly stud, but in the last couple of years, the commercial side of it's really cranked up. We've leased more country, bought more country, and yeah, our numbers have, have got up pretty well. The commercials are uh, doing a great job by themselves. And so, for on the stud side of things, for you guys, um, uh, it it wasn't always this way, was it? There was a, a bit of a burning passion in the background that brought it around. 
Definitely a burning passion. Um, when I was a boy, I remember getting off the off the school bus um, when we were shearing, and you'd run up to the shearing shed and and you'd raid Dad's tucker box to see what he didn't eat at morning afternoon tea, and then we'd jump in the wool bins then for you know the next hour, and then the day'd be finished, and we'd go home. And, and I think it was that just something about that that I wanted to be part of. I, I just had a passion for wool and sheep, and and um, I remember going to the show. Uh, local show not long after that and seeing these merino sheep in pens and that had been fed up and they just looked magnificent and it was something that I'd, I'd wanted to do and I'd pressured Dad for a fair while about, you know, this is, I'd love to get stud sheep and lo and behold one day he said, I've, I've found some stud ewes and um, much to my disgust he'd come home with some pole dorset ewes that, <laughs> um, that I wasn't that keen on or that interested in but uh, we, we ran a little pole dorset stud for a little while and um Mainly for our own own purposes, and then um, yeah, I, I went and did a um, I went and did a uh, well before that I went and um, started shearing, um, wool classing, rouse batting, um, just to try and I love sheep, so that's that's where I went. Yeah. Was it a, a job as such that wool classing? Was there kind of was it a strategic move in terms of you were looking to really learn every element of the shed and, and the fibre? I think at that stage it was a need as well. There was a need to, to earn money um, because my uncle had split off from my father and the farm had got smaller as such and there was there was three of us boys that wanted to come home and so it was a need to go and get another job, learn another trade and and I was always drawn to the shearing shed and so that's that's where we that's where I ended. Yeah, great. Ended up, yeah. And you mentioned this love of well, what is it about wool as a fibre that really draws you in? It's just the look of it and the touch of it. It's, when you get that special fleece that you could just act, you could sleep on, it's beautiful. It, it's, it's natural fibre. Uh, it's beautiful. And for you, Hannah, you've you're studying sustainability yeah. or sustainable communities now at uni. Yeah, yeah. Do you think wool has had a big, like, well, the, the farming business has had a big influence on that? Um, I think it could do. And what does the sustainable communities course look like? Um, first year is mainly based off you know, how societies are established and the inequalities and how you could get around the inequalities. And then second year has been the future of cities and possible, like the future of food, how we could actually become more sustainable. And it's actually been a bit of a contrast to, you know, what I've, you know, know because it's really agricultural industry is not painted in a good light. It's, you know, they talk about how, all the grain used to feed livestock could actually be used to feed, like, cure poverty and feed all those to the hunger, um, like, global hunger and all that. Um, and then they're talking about, you know, moving towards more insect-based diets and plant-based diets and how that could, yeah, change and feed the growing population. And, yeah, so it's, it's really different to being on the farm and, yeah. Our sole enterprise, you know, is basically livestock and, livestock and that's what, yeah, we know. So it's been different, but it's been good. Has it really challenged your thinking in terms of like that, that piece around, yeah, that uh, one being city or metro-based, but, yeah, challenged your thinking around ag and how other people who necessarily haven't grown up on a farm are viewing it? Yeah, well, the difference between, like, the two worlds is really, like... People in the city, you know, they, they do the thing and they're not, you know, reliant on the weather or they're not, like, it's a completely different sort of view, lifestyle and, yeah, so 
it, yeah, it is different and it is challenging because, um, you yeah, know, down there and there's not a lot of people in the same sort of frame of mind. Like there's not a lot of ag people, which is, yeah, why I'm thinking of maybe doing a second degree at a more agricultural place like Wagga or UNE and Armadale. But, yeah, it's been – it's also been good to see the other side of it and see, yeah, the different possibilities and, yeah, sustainable practices that could come about. It's interesting that livestock piece, and maybe for you, Scott, as well. Like, there's, there. If we look at for you guys, it's like, yeah, the the livestock business is actually producing then a sustainable fibre. And what in terms of the a message or, or something that you'd like people to know about the wool industry that maybe and, and your business that yeah the the average punter in the, in the city mightn't know. Probably the biggest thing at the moment is is the musing issue. Um, in the merino industry, uh, and and then the, the build up from there about responsible um, wool standards is is a company that we sell wool through, um, or or a company that we have to meet standards for to be able to sell the wool un- under their banner. Um, at the moment, we need to meet criteria on grazing, animal welfare, uh, chemicals, fertilizer use, so it comes under the whole umbrella of sustainability. Um, as well as labour, um, making sure our labour's well paid and looked after. Um, so it's it's. And I was talking to a broker the other day, and and RWS is only one percent of the Australian wool clip. So there are certainly huge gains out there that Australian wool producers can make in in um, getting to more sustainable by by heading down this road. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Can we? There's a couple of things I want to jump into there. First part, mulesing. Can you explain that? I've only ever seen it done a couple of times at the place I jackarooed at in 2011 was mulesing, but are you able to yeah, share with us what is mulesing, what, yeah, what is the practice and, and why the industry is moving away from it? Yeah, well, well mulesing is, um, is a surgical practice basically done by, by contractors, um, is cutting the skin away from the vulva and around the tail to stop the urine and dag stain staying there, which would increase the... the um, fly strike um, in that area. Um, traditionally, sheep have been really wrinkly in that area. Um, we haven't mules for 12 years, so we've planed our, we've planed our breech, breeches up so there's no wrinkle on our breech, so they're more like a crossbred, really plain sort of skin around there, so there's no need to, to mules. So mulesing's kind of the reactive process, uh, but then there's, there, for yeah. a considerable amount of time, the industry itself has been yeah, breeding animals that necessarily don't have that that skin yeah. and that wool how does that actually come about and how, how long does it take 
for something like that to occur? Uh, originally, even ourselves, we, we were trying to breed this, uh, I guess, I'd call it a sheep for the show ring that had big folds on the neck. That they, The necks were nearly dragging on the ground. They had that many folds on and they were really thick-skinned and, and, and hard wrinkles across the body. Um, through the process of, of breeding a plainer, plainer thinner-skinned sheep, we've been able to get rid of the wrinkles everywhere. So they now they now look more like a like a crossbred, or, or I guess for people in Sydney, like a like a horse. Mm-hmm. Um, very plain in the skin. They don't have that that wrinkle on them. Um, it took us, I guess, about three years to really start wiping off some of the wrinkles. And we've been non-mules now for about 12 years and we've had no adverse side effects. Yeah, it's a bit daunting for the first couple of years until you get used to it because you wonder what's what's going to happen. Yeah. And you do have to... Your husbandry does have to be a bit better. You do have to keep a bit more of an eye on them from time to time. But the push is coming from the end user, the people that buy the garments. They're the ones that want non-mules wool because they don't want to see pictures of sheep being surgically mulesed anymore. So if we're going to keep selling our product, we have to keep up with what they want. And is that part of where RWS responsible wool standards comes in? And, and is that really being consumer led, or definitely being consumer led? Yes. And for sure. is that exciting or daunting? You think? No, I think it's very exciting for someone like us. I see ourselves as being fairly forward thinking within the industry, um, and that's exciting. It, it just opens up more doors for us. I think. Yeah. And so, how does that process actually? How does you were saying one percent of the Australian wool growers are? Um, RWS certified. So how do more people get involved or on the flip side of that, why aren't more people involved? I think there's, there's probably a few reasons why, why more people aren't involved. One, some people don't want to be told what to do. Um, two, they just think it's too hard, too much hard work. Um, we've been pretty lucky that we're in a couple of bigger groups that have allowed us to be, become certified as one group. Um, and I think... As times change more and more, people will jump on board because they're asking for it, the end users are asking for it, so we can only go one way. In the end, mulesing is going to stop, there's no doubt about that. Um, so people can only go one way. Whether they're part of the RWS scheme, uh, maybe not, but they'll certainly be non-mulesed. Yeah. For, for you, Scott, having the daughters show an interest in coming back to the business, how has that changed yeah, your approach to farming or, or the way you're working? It's got more expensive. <laughs> um, yeah, since since the girls have, have um, said that they'd they'd like to come home, I'll, I'll probably go a little bit before then. We um, there's an RCS course uh, run, and we decided that both girls should go along and and do this RCS course, which is about grazing management and finances and and whatnot. At that stage, uh, only one of our daughters said they wanted to come home. By the time Hannah had gone too, halfway through the course, she'd come out and said. I want to come home as well. So, <laughs> so uh, at, at that stage, which I'm, I'm very happy about, I'm not so sure that Anna is, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm quite happy to have um, <laughs> both both daughters or two two of our three daughters want to come home. Um, so we've we've set about on upgrading our sheepyards, putting new sheepyards in, uh, and at this stage, we're about to start on a on a brand new shearing shed, something that will be there for them forever. Um, so we're just trying to do things like that that makes their life a bit easier. And I'm not getting any younger. I don't like climbing fences and whatnot anymore. So anything that we can do now to help them and help me into the future is great. And for you, Hannah, that, that course, um, t- tell me a little bit more about that and what you learnt. It was 
it was just eye-opening really just to see the difference that the agricultural sector could be. Like it wasn't just you have to farm sheep or you have to be a cropper. It's you can broaden your business and do different enterprises and you can make it work in whatever way suits you. And so coming back and it was all about, you know, diversity and I've always been always love animals so Jane and I are talking about you know maybe adding chickens and then having the poo as fertilizer and stuff like that like it was it was just yeah it was eye-opening it was it was inspiring really and so I see a couple of chickens roaming around the yard but that might is that the start of the enterprise or is well that just <laughs> it's still yeah just an idea base at the moment we haven't actually started it but yeah Jane Jane's pretty keen on that so yeah we'll see yeah, yeah. cool and is that in terms of uh, like movable caravans or would yeah, it be? Yeah, sort of thing, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and like what would that allow for for your, your paddocks, like having chickens like? Well, yeah, just um, sort of even companion species, like how if you have, not that we're cattle-based, but if you have chooks and cattle, the chooks eat like the fleas off the cattle and, the, and so they, you know, have a relationship together and they both work together and... They add benefits for yeah each other and the land. And for you, Scott, you're excited to become a chicken farmer. <laughs> I'm not so much into chickens, <laughs> but but in the end, I I don't want to hold on forever, and I'd I'd like to see them take their own passion, whether that be merino sheep or which I think it will be anyway. But there'll be a sideline enterprise there that I think that we'll get into, and that'll help us get through the tougher times as well. Talk me through that a little bit. You're saying not holding on forever. That, that transition, and I know it, it, it is a big thing in agriculture where the next generation do come through and work with the generation before them. Uh, yeah, what was it like in, in your experience? Uh, at times frustrating, um, as all family partnerships are, um, but as such we had a, had a good working relationship. Uh, as we got further into it, I had passions that I wanted to do and I had a young family and I was always more self-driven to try and get out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that eventually happened, um, and we've all now got blocks that that is that is fantastic. So, and credit to dad that dad and mum in the end that they they said, yep, we'll, we'll go down this path. It took us a while; it wasn't fast, but it, we got there, and everyone was happy in the end. So that was the main thing, um, and that's what I want to do for the girls. I want them like I'm only I'm only fifty two. Like I don't don't consider myself old, yeah, but yet I want them to come in and feel like they can do. What they f- what they think they want to do, um, so long as we run through budgets and things and scenarios and and give them a give them a, a lift up. After farming on your own for quite a number of years, has it really ch- kind of yeah did it reinvigorate you or or yeah kind of reignite that? Not that the, maybe the passion dwindled, but having different people to bounce those ideas off and get excited about little things with it. it it, it was certainly a, a relief to be out of a partnership and making your own decisions. But there's a bit of a double-edged sword with it too. Things you miss about bouncing stuff off your brother or your father as much. like And, and just having that financial backstop there a little bit too, like you jumped out by yourself you know, with, with good debts and whatnot. So you know, we, we had to watch ourselves. It wasn't easy. And then to get to this stage now where I feel like we're quite comfortable um, and we've got the business to a stage where it's, it's humming nicely... It, and we've been aligned with some fantastic people um, in the last five or six years through our Merino enterprise and, and our, stud, our stud business. It's Yeah, the sky's the limit, I think, at the moment. It's very exciting. 
And with those stud sales, maybe Hannah, for you, have you been involved with them since you've been home over the last couple of years? Yeah, the first one was during my gap year, so 2019. And it was sort of a small role, but I was in charge of feeding the rams in the shed that were in there for field days and stuff like that. And I loved that. I loved the interaction with animals this year. Always been my passion. Um, And then since then, sort of been going to the field days and, you know, networking a little bit and seeing what's out there introduced to different studs and you know what they're doing and then yeah so getting a bigger role every year and yeah hopefully that continues and in terms of the change from like 2019 i've seen some photos out this way were you guys as badly affected with the drought as as others in the district yeah i think we just seem to be in a little shadow here we had nine inches for three years running um when our annual rainfalls um, 640 millimetres to end up with just a small part of that. It was very tough, like dams were dry. We had to sink another bore just to have stock water. Um, but what it did do was make us do some internal things like new sheep yards to take our mind off the drought, and we put in drought drought pens so we could actually keep the stock off our country, lock them up and feed them what they need there so they're getting exactly what they need in the pens. We hired a nutritionist, uh, we bought a feed mixer. Uh, we did a lot of things that looking back, probably for mindset was very good and it'll set us up for the next dry spell that we have. And was that a big part, like employing a nutritionist? I, uh, yeah, I think probably a lot of people are aware that there's nutritionists for people, but maybe not so much for animals. What what did their role look like when they came and got involved? Uh, we, we had the nutritionist just prior to the, prior to the, um, the drought, and just having them on board to be able to put our feed mixes together um, so we knew what we were feeding the sheep was the right thing and they were going to do well in there. Um, he's been a fantastic part of our business now for quite a while, even to the stage of um, what grazing will put sheep on a particular paddock and tell him what's in there and go, well, just watch out for this or do this, um, put them in at this sort of day, it's this certain time of day. Um, and for lambing-wise, you'd help us out with, with brews, pre-lambing brews that helps the ewes push the lamb out a bit easier and, and things like that. Yeah. All the little things that start with nutrition. Mm, that's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, you, as a business, you mentioned that you were um, taking sheep off country and locking them up to help manage the drought. But yeah, well, there's the nutrition side and then there's kind of the soil and paddock side as well. So what were you guys doing and what were the priorities there in terms of you had the animals sorted with their diets and then you turned that focus to really looking at, at, at country as well. well the, the, main, the main, well, the two main focuses were, one, firstly, the stock, as you say, we had that covered. They had clean water and they had everything they wanted. And the other part was just making sure that what ground cover we had left, um, that we kept it there so it didn't run off and we kept as much nutrient back in our country as we could. And we didn't really get in there early enough. Looking back now and having our pens built now, next time we run into a dry spell, we'll put them in a lot earlier um, before, our, before we, we get to a stage where I think our country is probably getting too bare. Do you, do you sit down after a drought and kind of reflect back on what worked, what didn't work, or do you move on fairly quickly? No, I think it's always in the back of your mind. And as soon as we came out of the last drought, and we, and we had that good cropping year, we started putting more fodder away. Um, we'd worked out 
what we needed in the last drought and, and how hard it was. And so we've started um, digging holes along, digging pits along creeks and, and filling them up with grain. So if it gets bad enough again, we can we can just access that grain again and, and use it. Did you Were you worried that you were going to lose years, nearly 20 years worth of genetics and livestock as part of that? Or was that playing on your mind that things could get that bad? It got that bad in the end that I was, I was worried about the, um, financially. If it had gone on another 12 months, just how we would have looked, uh, it was really starting to do some major damage financially and mentally. Uh, it, towards the end there, it really knocked me around. Yep. Um, and it's, it was so nice to, to hear it finally rain, and, and when it broke, no one predicted it. It never looked like it was going to rain, and then all of a sudden it started raining and really hasn't stopped for the last couple of years. But it was... It was a time that I don't really want to go back to. I, I remembered other droughts, but this one just was just relentless. And that build-up, do you remember what you did when, the, when that rain did come? I remember we were um, coming back from Orange. We'd been to Anna's brother's 40th, not 40th, 50th, I think. And um, so we'd had, a, we'd had a storm in Orange and, and all the way home we were just hoping that the road would keep being wet and... We finally arrived and it had been on some of our lease country. We didn't have it here, but it had it on some of our lease country. It was fantastic. And then I think it was a couple of days later, a week later, we had a good storm here. And as with all storms after drought, there's a lot of nutrient went down the creek. And the only water that we had for our um, for our feedlot, we had, we had our ewes locked up, ended up full of um, sheep shit and, and straw and everything. So... It was a bit of a double-edged sword then. We then had to work on getting it clean so the sheep had clean drinking water And because um, I wanted to let the country grass right up before I let them out. It yep. wasn't much point in just letting them out and letting them go. So we, we set about on cleaning it out for a while and then, then um, yeah, when we had plenty of feed, we, we let the sheep out. You mentioned around like classing and that was quite a transitional or transformational change for you. Can you talk us through a little bit more about that? You mentioned Jim Watts, but... What was the classy piece? Was this in, with the, with the wool specifically? Yeah, when I um, when I went to do that course uh, to learn about, which I thought was just sheep classing until I got there, and then it was more about the science of the skin and and the follicle and and the crimp and and the way the sheep looked from the more traditional necky wrinkly sort of sheep that to a a more high rump. Uh, big ears, deep jaw, plain-bodied sort of sheep. For the people in, I guess, in, in Sydney, again, it, it looked more like a thoroughbred than what it would. Um, so it was it was very interesting, and, and Jim's been instrumental in, in the sheep industry and the merino industry. Um, he doesn't get the accolades he deserved um, and probably never will, but if you could see the change in the sheep from say, 20 years ago to now, uh, even even the photos in the land newspaper of the one that wins the Sydney Royal Easter show, they've gone from big necky sheep to these more productive, I call them more productive, plain-bodied sheep that can withstand, more resilient, can stand, can stand um, tougher times, can have more lambs, um, and are more profitable, easier care. And, like, in terms of wool, what's the difference between... Because you're talking a lot about the the animal, but like good wool versus bad wool is all all wool the same? Uh, all wool's not the same. 
and, and there are a lot of different grades of wool and, and, and there are a need for different grades of wool, but uh, we, we try and produce a, a wool that's bold, crimping, deep, deeply crimped, um, is soft and lustrous when you look at it. It, it, it actually shines at you. Like, and one, 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 one of those fleeces come on the table or, you, or you're classing and you find this sheep that's got this magnificent fibre, you could just put it in your pillow. You could just lay on it. It's, it's, it's a beautiful fibre. And that's and that's what we strive for. We strive to get every sheep like that. It doesn't always work, um, but there are different grades. There are there are sheep that have a, a higher prickle um, to them. So when you if you put that fibre next to your your body, you would get itchy. Whereas our wool doesn't do that. You don't get itchy from our wool. It's next to the skin, sort of um, sort of wear. I guess you'd call it. And I think it's really. What's really exciting, like Andy Murray, a couple of years ago at the Australian Open was wearing a full wool outfit. Like there's a there's a real stigma associated with wool that it is prickly, but there's some pretty progressive businesses now um, yeah, using it in activewear and other things. It's exciting to see. That's been the big market growth, I think, in wool is the activewear, and it's been happening now for a little while. Uh, I think the rugby guys have been wearing them for a while. Um, so it, it's exciting to think that people now want to – you know, they just don't want a jumper that they're going to stick on and get prickled by. They can actually wear this beautiful fibre next to the skin. And a lot of that kind of end product actually starts back in the paddock and a lot of science behind it. For, for you guys, um, you'd mentioned before we started talking <laughs> that you do a bit of DNA testing. So that sounds very um, impressive. Like, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so um, for the last uh, four or five years now, We've been um, DNA testing all all of our lambs, stud lambs, uh, to better understand their parentage uh, and to get, I guess, more control or to see what their figures are going to be like. We can predict their figures just once we've once we've got their um, DNA test back. It's already worked out um, how much wool they're going to cut, what micron they're going to be, what eye muscle they're going to have, what fat colour they sh- they should have. Um, and through all that, we've been we've, we've um, aligned ourselves with um, a company called Sheep Matrix. Um, Sally Martin is the owner of that, and she's been instrumental in in she captures a lot of our data and analyses our data for us, so we can just concentrate on the on the manual jobs mainly at home. Like, and we can't influence the data. Like, if she's managing it, we can't influence, which is great. Um, and she's very good with all the computer sort of stuff whereas I haven't got time um, I, I get too frustrated trying to analyse everything so Sal does it all for us and it's fantastic and Hannah for you what's your involvement in that side of the business and um, I have done a bit of work with fleece weighing and side sampling stuff like that um, when I first started the gap year I had no idea about the ASVVs but yes yeah, slowly getting more introduced to them and understand them and know what they mean and yeah it's been interesting it's been really interesting in terms of ASBVs, can you tell us a little bit more about what it is, what it means? So Australian Standard Breeding Values, and it is just all the data that is in relation to the animal, and you get it from testing, and I think it is a, it is what their prodigy will be. Yeah, so it gives you just a more overall idea of the animal and what they can produce. Do you reckon there's an opportunity, you know how provenance is coming through where people, say with meat, it's being able to track back to the farm. 
the country road did a jumper, like a limited edition jumper that was, yeah, traceable back to the farm. Do you reckon the more farmers that are taking up this DNA side of things, like there would be the chance to to really start to trace it back in quite a straightforward way from the from a, a piece of clothing. The the DNA is is more for the Australian sheep breeding values. It's more to um, help you better breed or to join animals and and come up with a, I guess, your breeding objective to meet your breeding objectives of what you're trying to do. Whereas getting back to traceability, uh, that all happens through responsible wool standards. Mm -hmm. You know, they come out and take photos and they want to know your whole story and, and that is happening now with garments, yeah, pretty regularly. And how, how are they marketing that, the responsible wool guys? I, I haven't got into it too much, but um, th- they are doing interviews with farmers uh, and they're, they're going back selling it to the storefronts and they're putting, I think they're putting labels on, on clothing and people can maybe hook on with a QR code and find out a bit about that. That farm and yeah, where it's cool. come from. That's pretty exciting. Mm, it is. W- what is it about like that and for you guys having the chance to t- share your story today on our podcast but more broadly for people who are yeah, like actually allowing people kind of inside the farm gate and in- engaging with them? What excites you about that? Hopefully just um, it opens people's eyes a bit more to that you know, farmers get a bit of a bad rap sometimes we're all out there trying to destroy the land and, and, and not looking after animals and I think people, if they can click on and just see a, a bit about the farm and a bit about the farmer's life and where their wool's come from, they might appreciate it a bit more and might get them out there to, to buy it. Absolutely. What excites you about that side of things, Hannah? Yeah, it, it is exciting. It is that more, yeah, just closing the gap between growers and and customers. And it's almost, it's the same as when you buy a milk bottle and you've got the picture of the family and the farmer and you know you feel a bit more connected to it you're a bit more yeah there's there's not as much gap and you feel more inclined to buy it and support and yeah that's good for but it's a question i've got for both of you you'll have to answer it individually so you can pick who goes first a question i ask everyone who comes on the podcast and this is all about trying to get more people interested in agriculture but if you had the chance to go and talk to a bunch of year 10 students what would be uh yeah, what, what would you say to them about pursuing a career in agriculture and why is it something that could be an, a great opportunity for them? Um, there's just so many different... There's It's such a diverse sector and there's so many different jobs and it can cater to so many different interests and abilities and everyone's just learning and trying to figure out what's best for them and their practice and, yeah, it's always changing, so... Anyone can be involved in, at any time, really. Yeah, I'm a bit the same there. It can agriculture's a big sector. You can be anywhere from science to a manual labourer. Um, there are just so many opportunities out there these days, and it's one of the biggest growing sectors I think we have in Australia. Um, and we need more workers, um, and we more, need more innovative people. There's just yeah, the world's your oyster, basically, I think. Yeah, and it's it is good money. I've got one more question around that, Scott, and obviously it's Hannah's uni degree around sustainable communities. That, of course, didn't exist a few years ago. What excites you about 
yeah, Hannah studying that and maybe more so in studying it in an urban setting and getting those viewpoints. What excites me about that? Um, just the fact that she questions some of the things that I do or, or we do and, and where we sit in the world environment, I, I guess, um, which is something new new to me, um, coming from where I, where I grew up and, and whatnot. And I think there'll be opportunities out there where she'll meet people um, and we'll be able to uh, work in the family business off that through the, through the connections that she's got. I think it'll help us both ways and it will help us plan for different things on the farm to be more sustainable in the future. Just like that, that's 2021 done. Thank you so much to everyone who's tuned in week in, week out this year. I've really enjoyed all the conversations that I've had and I hope you have too. We're taking a bit of a break over Christmas, resting, recuperating, but more importantly, working out what are the key topics and themes we want to talk about leading into next year and who are the people that are going to be the most interesting to talk to about that. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. And if you are traveling, just throw on the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Let it keep you company. Enjoy your break and a happy Christmas. <laughs>